Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Michael Geddes. Michael is the executive producer of Offside, the Harold Ballard story, a new documentary uncovering the life of the controversial former owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs during his chaotic reign during the 1970s and 1980s. From the day Ballard assumed ownership in 1972 until his death in 1990, he was an absolute magnet for publicity, both good and bad. He knew how to run the Carlton Street cash box and make money, but he didn't want to spend it on his team. He also exhibited offensive behaviors ranging from backhanded contract dealings to sexist tirades to even serving a year in prison for theft and fraud. This documentary covers all that and more with unprecedented access to A1 guests, including former players like Daryl Sittler, Lanny McDonald, and Tiger Williams, former executives like Bob and Gord Stellick, and journalists like Wayne Parrish and Sunil Joshi. And to make this doc even more compelling, it is directed and narrated by none other than Brandon Walsh from Beverly Hills 90210, otherwise known as Canada's own Jason Priestley. Welcome, Michael, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thank you, Andrew. Uh, yeah, good to be here. I'm uh, in the cozy confines of my office. Uh, I just live outside of Toronto in Kleinberg. Oh, excellent. And you're surviving Snowgeddon uh, 2023? Yeah, at least this one, Snowmageddon, uh, at least there's snow. Sometimes the snow misses us and we get all uh, locked down for nothing. Yeah, so, there's always an adventure. There's always another yeah, day. Yeah, so I'm glad I'm, uh, I'm, I'm safe and sound in my house. No plans to go out. Excellent. <laughs> well, first of all, congratulations. The doc is currently streaming on CBC Gem. I watched it. I really enjoyed it. Thank I you. grew up going to games at the fabulous Maple Leaf Gardens in the 70s and 80s, so your doc brought back absolutely fantastic memories, despite mm-hmm. all the lack of winning. What's been the viewer reaction so far? Well, um, I'm glad you said that, Andrew, because it is, it is a real callback uh, to an era that I think a lot of people have forgotten. All they have to do the moment uh, they get upset at this current Leafs team in any sh- uh, way, shape, or form, they just have to now... Remember, boy, oh boy, was it different back then. So uh, not much to worry about these days other than, you know, we know we got an excellent team on the ice. Uh, It's one of those topics that uh, when you, as a television producer, you have to, uh, ideas bang around in your head all the time. And the odd one locks in, and and this one really locked in for me because, you know, nobody had told this uh, story of Harold Ballard. And if you think about back in, an, in a, a very, very different Toronto in the 70s and 80s, a guy like Harold, th- there was nobody like him. He was the, the biggest character uh, in this city for sure, and I think it, maybe even in this country at that time. So uh, the more we dug in, the more I got excited about doing this. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a labor of love. It took a long time. And, 
We really just wanted to, and with Jason Priestley, our director, and another uh, producer, Chuck Tatham, a very talent, two very talented Canadians in their own right, uh, we wanted to get the story out there and let people make their own mind up on Harold. Uh, we really didn't have an interest in moving, moving the needle on the very, very public story about the Harold Ballard they know, which was this sort of public enemy number one. And I mean, that story's been told in small bites, but this is the first deep dive. Uh, anybody's done on on Ballard. Well, I was going to ask you, you know, he has died more than three decades ago, April 1990. Yeah. And yeah. I did want to ask, why is this documentary of interest today? What prompted you to the project? You've, you've talked about that a lot already. But yeah. how have you found this has resonated with viewers who may not have even been alive during Ballard's reign? Yeah, I mean, it's resonated with my generation and the generation before me extremely well. Um, they They all have, it seems, a personal intersection with Ballard, uh, the, the number of stories that have come my way and to others in the production, it's, it's incredible. So that's always a nice water cooler test. Let's call it a virtual water cooler test now. Um, but the, for the younger generation, you know, they've heard rumors of Harold. They've heard about this guy. And now I think this will inform them as to uh, maybe what those rumors are all about. And just through a lens, you know, we, we didn't go through a today lens on this. We really produced this and set it in the 70s as best we could. Obviously, with the people we interviewed who were around and playing hockey and reporting on Ballard at that time throughout the 70s and 80s. And, uh, you know, I think it speaks for itself how uh, far we've come uh, as far as ownership of a professional sports franchise because everybody was a cowboy back then it was it was kind of the wild west uh, that's not the case today you've got a you know with maple leaf sports and entertainment and many other uh, owners of sports uh, franchises a solid state first class organization that spends money to win and when the consumer and the and the and the people buying tickets to those games buy those tickets they have that trust and that was not the case back then well, pre-1967, people yep. actually grew up as Leaf fans thinking Stanley Cups just naturally belong to Toronto. I recently had on this podcast renowned neurosurgeon Dr. Charles Tatter. He was a yep. self-described local yokel who was, interestingly, by the way, born at the same hospital he works at today, Toronto Western, back in 1936. He told me that in the 1960s, if they missed a Stanley Cup parade, no problem, they'll catch the next one. Yeah. And it was that kind of attitude. It's now been literally a full generation since the Leafs won a cup. It has not happened in my lifetime. I am now on the wrong side of 50. We are currently mm -hmm. in the 56th season without winning a mm -hmm. Stanley Cup. And even worse, the 19th season without even getting past the first round of the playoffs. Your doc suggests that a Ballard curse exists. And that uh, I guess many Leaf fans believe that the decisions he made as owner continue to haunt the franchise today. Michael, did you yeah. come into this doc with the Ballard curse hypothesis, or was this kind of the outcome of all your extensive interviews and research? Yeah, there's no hypothesis. I mean, curses are almost a fun way of dealing in uh, grief. You hear about it the first round of the playoffs, uh, but I think after seeing the documentary, people will will clearly see. You know, we're not we're not uh, in that same time today. And the team and the product on the ice is, is first among equals in the NHL. And from the top down, everybody wants to win. So, you know, the, the curse is something that's out there. I think it was mentioned in the documentary right at the end, but we certainly didn't set out on an exploration to 
validate any curses, any, you know, for sure. So Yeah, and it is always good for uh, marketing the team, as you probably are well aware, Boston Red Sox had this crazy 86-year yeah. drought. The Bam Curse the Bambino, they won the 2004 World Series, yeah. everything was right again. Let me challenge you a little, if I may, Michael. And this is on the concept of if Harold Ballard was such an extraordinarily bad owner, why haven't the Leafs done any better in the 33 years since he passed away? In mm-hmm. short, why are we blaming Harold for everything? It's an interesting question. I mean, we, we had some great teams in the 90s. We had, uh, you know, some great teams, uh, you know, right up to last year and, and this year. I, I happen to think the one thing that that runs through the lowest common denominator on this is the Stanley Cup is one of the hardest trophies to win in all of professional sports. Um, based on the playoff schedule, day on, day off. So they're playing a grueling hockey game in the playoffs every other day. There isn't another sport like that. You could argue basketball is like that, but it's not as physical. So it's a grueling thing to win. Um, yeah, the, the most dynamic hockey and biggest hockey market in, in all the NHL you know, with New York is, is Toronto. Yeah, there's, there's no answer. Uh, and I'm sure if anybody had the answer, uh, they would address it. But, you know, uh, when Stavro took the Leafs over immediately after Ballard uh, passed away, uh, there was a guy that he wanted to win. Um, you know, those were the Gilmore and Sundin years. There were some great hockey teams. You know, combination of being in a tough division every single season and uh, there's, there's no answer. I mean, yeah. It's a great question, and uh, but I well, do think all arrows are pointed in the right direction. That's the difference. Yeah. But there were not. There was there was a lot of arrows pointing in the wrong direction during the ballot era, as the documentary goes deep into. Sure, and as you point out, it really is a battle of attrition. It's the hardest championship to win. But you know, he was identified, Harold Ballard, uh, mm-hmm. by many of your interviewees as a loser. As mm-hmm. if since he passed away, the Maple Leafs have suddenly become winners. Mm-hmm. I did want to give you this fact and to the listeners. You know, between yeah. 1972 and the year of his death in 1990, the Leafs got past the first round of the playoffs seven times in 18 seasons. And since 1990, the Leafs have also gotten past the first round seven times. But this was over a much longer 33-year period, and all seven of those first round wins took place before 2004. So... I guess I repeat the startling stat that they are now at 19 seasons without getting past the first round. And it's not as if the new owners aren't trying to make money. It's, as you've noted, MLSC, the current owner, 75% owned by Bell and Rogers. Their number one priority is making money. So in a way, I guess uh, I guess I put it out there. How is it any different? Greed is still good. But I guess, as you know, things are uh, heading more in the right normal direction. Yeah, I mean, I happen to love... Uh what they're doing so and it's not for me to comment on what's what's uh, happening on the ice um because i i clearly in this documentary went went to the ballard era and anything after that is uh, another documentary i guess but they're doing the right things and that is uh what sports fans hockey fans in this country should know and i think they do without a doubt actually that they are trying and they are working very hard to win and and they have a winning team that's the difference like they have a winning team but as the playoffs it's it's anybody's it's anybody's guess that's playoffs are tough in any sport as i said before hockey may be the toughest so that's that's a question for the powers to be at uh at the hockey club rather than me trying to comment on uh 
on 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 the Leafs and how they're playing and and the why. Absolutely, and hope springs eternal. We're all on the same yeah. page, Michael. Yeah. We all hope this is the year. Let's talk about some of the interesting things you did bring up in your doc. Harold Ballard came across as a cheapskate and a nickel and dimer, and thus one would have presumed mm. that he came up out of modest means, and that would explain his thriftiness. But in fact, Harold Ballard came from money and a private school education. Yeah, you would think penny pinching comes with growing up uh, where you're living kind of hand to mouth. He did, he did not live up, live and grow up that way in the city. He came from came from some money. He wasn't part of the uh, elite, but he came from money. I think I think that's where we get into the the greed aspect of it. He never really understood that you have to spend money to make money. And let's remember when the Ballard era was operating. They had, uh, we've talked about this, you know, they had bums and seats constantly. And when that's the case, you have a full house and demand outstrips supply no matter what happens. Uh, I think it, it, you know, you're operating with not a sharp pencil, but no pencil. And consequences of, you know, impulsive decisions and actions uh, don't, don't hit your bottom line. So I think he doubled down on that and he became a cheapskate because he, he just, he knew how to make money. He was a consummate promoter, Harold Ballard. And, you know, it just went against his, uh, I guess, his, his DNA. He would rather not spend money than spend money because the net result was he was going to, you know, double down and double his profits. So um, he said he wanted to win, but clearly nothing he did followed that credo. Well, as you know, Michael, he wasn't a business neophyte. In, in fact, his yeah. father had been an entrepreneur, and Harold yeah. himself was an entrepreneur. He invented a machine to cut hot dog buns for Sam Shopovitz from yeah. Shopsy's fame. Exactly. So he knew how to be a business person. Yeah, and I think I think that's probably why he left, you know, a comfortable uh, living and career to get into more of the limelight. Is that I think I think the limelight and being in control, total control, uh, was what really drove him. I think he loved putting himself out front and he did it in front of his, you know, in a higher priority than his own players on the ice. So uh, that's what, you know, was one of his huge motivations we discovered is, you know, despite everything and making solid business decisions, it was, it was the, the greed also went into, I think, Harold wanting the limelight and wanting to be the face of the team back then. Something interesting about him that we, I learned was how accessible he was. Many of us were familiar with Harold Ballard watching games with his sidekick, King Clancy, from that Muppets bunker, just like yeah. Statler and Waldorf. Yeah. They were accessible to the fans, which would absolutely not happen today. No, I mean, he was accessible. Uh, I think when you went to a Leafs game, and I remember many times and being at the old Maple Leaf Gardens, and you could always look over your left or right shoulder and and know that Harold was there, and that is uh, that was just the I think that was just the norm. I think people just expected to see him. I mean, let's face it, he lived in the building, and people knew that, and they just accepted it. I don't think anybody questioned it back then. So yes, he was accessible. They knew, you know, they were sitting in his house literally. But once we got into this documentary, it reminded me just how crazy that is. So to have a sports owner move out of his residence in the West End Lock, Stock and Barrel and move into the, you know, the, the grand old uh, mecca of Maple Leaf Gardens. There were times, and, and I've, I've taken this even further, 
There must have been times where he was literally at two in the morning, the only person in the building uh, sleeping. And I'm sure the building had its own set of noises and creaks and sounds. And I mean, I think that would have been a little bit terrifying at the same time. Yeah. So he, he uh, but he lived in the building. So yes, he would be roaming the hallways. That was part of his celebrity. He loved glad handing people and he was probably very good at it, right? The gardens was his castle. Yeah. As you note, you had some great footage of his apartment. He had direct access to his viewing bunker. He'd eat his meals in the hot stove lounge as his private restaurant. He'd yeah. take jacuzzis in the Leafs dressing room. As you know, Michael, this is, uh, it's, you don't even believe today that could happen. But no. uh, yeah, it would have been interesting to have all the house sounds we get from our modest house in uh, a huge arena like that. Well, and, and, and sports, sports owners today either are ivory tower companies that you know for instance big cable companies like we have here and in, in, in telcos or they are the hobby project of a very wealthy billionaire who has made you know billions and billions and billions of dollars and now their hobby and passion quite frankly is their sports team and their sports team probably occupies more of their day than any part of their operating businesses because they just they just run on their own now so they get full attention full support they run very very well because it's on the back of somebody that's been a very successful entrepreneur obviously to become a billionaire so they're operating their teams the same way but as i said earlier i mean you had a you had really a bunch of cowboys running sports teams back then and you know the leagues all the leagues uh, professional leagues have constitutions that are much different than they were back then. They can't allow renegade owners like a Ballard to operate outside of a you know strict uh, protocol and constitution. And if that's the case, you know they have ways now to get rid of people like Ballard because he clearly wouldn't have exi existed today. We all know that, and that's not even um, speaking about how offside he was. Hence the title with everything he said and everything yeah. he felt and everything he believed in and the, you know, he, the way he offended people. So you know, case in point, Donald Sterling with the Clippers in the NBA. I mean, you can't allow an owner with an institution like a sports franchise in a city to operate that way. Such different times to go from individual, as you say, yeah. cowboys to corporate ownership. If you were enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Michael Geddes, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We've got producer Barry Averidge, Tiff's Cameron Bailey, Yorkville hairstylist Gary Chowan, and crooner Matt Dusk. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Michael, you draw a very interesting conclusion that Harold Ballard needed someone with him. After the death of his wife, Dorothy, in 1969, he really bonded with King Clancy. After the death of King Clancy, he got into an eight-year relationship with Yolanda McMillan in the 1980s. Talk about how Yolanda came into Harold's life. You know, it was clear that Harold, the, the, the sentimental thread through this documentary is Harold did uh, love having somebody by his side at all times. Of course, after his wife passed away, it was clear, it was, it was devastating to him at many, many levels. And he, uh, you know, met up and, and linked up with Stafford Smythe, his next sidekick and co-owner died and it was King Clancy. And then lo and behold, literally Yolanda arrived on his doorstep with a cake 
for his birthday. Uh, a cake being an interesting choice because he was a well-known diabetic as well. And, you know, um, her past was as shady as a past as there could be. Um, she was a convicted felon as well for forging checks, I believe. And she, you know, I think it was clear she targeted Ballard. And Ballard at a time in his life when he was, he was on the decline. Things were starting to become undone and the wheels were coming off a bit with his, you know, uh, with his mental fa you know, faculties and his physical well-being. So she uh, was an opportunist and um, hence, you know, uh, that was the loudest, craziest five or so years of, and his last chapter, quite frankly, were those Yolanda years, and uh, probably made more headlines than uh, the previous two, uh, the previous decade prior. So it was a crazy time, and, and they were in the news a lot. Well, as you know, when she showed up with a cake uh, unannounced uh, at his uh, birthday, she reportedly broke the ice by saying, we got something in common, we've both been to jail. Yeah. And it's yeah. been yeah. it's been said that birds yeah. of a feather do time together. So that yeah. was quite a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> now this of course greatly affected Harold's relationship with his children, Bill, Mary Elizabeth, and Harold Jr., but particularly with his late son Bill. Now Bill was a prolific entrepreneur himself, founding mm -hmm. CPI, Concert mm -hmm. Productions International with Michael Cole. But your documentary notes that Harold didn't really give Bill credit when Harold was at Millhaven. Bill ran the whole company. He ran it tremendously. And what happened as soon as Harold got out of jail? Did he thank Bill? As the documentary states with a few of the people who were around at that time, namely, you know, Alan Eagleson is one, that, uh, you know, I guess there was no plan, uh, succession plan. And you think about it, you know, this is very much like an episode of succession, but the plan was not to have Bill run the lease. And as soon as Ballard came back from Millhaven, it was uh, apparently an abrupt exit for his son, and his, you know, as you said, his son, uh, very successful concert promoter with Michael Cole, and he was very big in the mining industry, I understand. So, you know, that might have been a, a backhanded compliment by Harold, but it was like, it, it, it was not going to happen on his watch. He wanted to be back in the saddle again. And, uh, you know, remember, that was the early 70s, so he still had a lot of gas in the tank then, and he had barely... Uh, lifted off. And, and I think one, a huge observation when we got into this documentary, people have to remember that uh, Harold Ballard took control of the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1971-72 when he was 68 years old. So, of course, is when people retire, especially back then. And here, here's a guy who, for the next 20 years of his life, put as much wind in his sails as he could and ran hard and probably was in over his head at the time, not knowing what was ahead of him. And he certainly was dealt a few hands that he had to deal with quickly back then as, as a 68-year-old man that uh, he had a rival league, the WHA, launched. And uh, nobody in the NHL, let alone Harold, knew how to deal with that. The result was they lost a lot of players, the Leafs way more than other teams. Um, there were no rules back then. It was they were coming in and, and, and robbing players because they had the money None of the owners were paying a lot of money back then to their players. They lost a lot, and teams got decimated. The league was on its knees for a while, quite frankly. Um, Harold uh, wasn't equipped for that, and certainly his DNA said he's not going to be, he's not going to pay the blood money to that league, which was a great soundbite in our documentary. Now, as your doc makes clear, some thought Harold Ballard was a buffoon, some thought he was a genius, some thought he was a clown, some thought he was a con man, and of course, everything in between. 
Nevertheless, some of the stories appear too buffoonish to be real. There's a ton of urban legends and myths around Harold Ballard. Michael, I was wondering through all your research and everything, did you uncover any urban legends or myths, i.e. things that actually weren't true? Well, the, the biggest urban myth was when the Beatles came in. And we talked about this in the documentary, and we have a bit of a dueling banjos approach to, uh, to that segment between two people and their, their individual takes on the story. One, one being, you know, Harold got the Beatles. The true fact is that he did sell a second show without the permission of the Fab Four uh, and inform them when they arrived in Toronto that they're playing a second show. And if they didn't, they'd be responsible for a riot that was going to be on their hands with, you know, 16,000 kids cut loose on Carlton Street. So that part is not an urban legend. That was true. Where the urban legend comes in is, you know, when the Beatles were playing, Harold being the promoter, uh, shut off all the uh, water fountains in the arena and only sold large uh, drink, soft drinks at the concession. And even, they say, turned the heat up in the building, which was a summer concert. We dispute that um, well-known urban legend with the fact that there never really was water fountains in the arena. Um, there was, you know, no air conditioning to turn off. The fact is that that's the kind of stuff Harold created and wanted to have happen. He, he reveled in that. It was clear. He wasn't a genius in business, but he had a genius aspect to how he learned very early how to play the media. And a lot of these urban legends, you know, there's some that didn't make it into the documentary. And, and, and one of my favorites... Um, he, he basically knew he could get on the phone and all the reporters had, you know, his phone number. Um, he could get on the phone with anybody and feed somebody a story. And they were used to this because he made their job easy. He provided columns, width, and lines. They wrote themselves, right? Harold made their job easy. And of course, it was a love-hate relationship. But the one that I think is my favorite, there was a club and all-female entrepreneurs feminist uh, club for successful women in downtown Toronto called the McGill Club. They came under some financial pressure. Harold caught wind of this in, in the press, announced that he was buying the building out from under them. And the moment he kicked them out, he was going to uh, put in a Playboy Club. It's that kind of craziness. There was nothing to that rumor. He didn't make a formal approach to buy the place. He fed it to the media. The media took the bait and, uh, you know, it, it got some ink. That's for sure. You know, and of course, infuriated uh, a whole group of women in this city and, and basically probably every female that he took it to that level saying he was going to put in a Playboy club. And it was really just to piss off and get a laugh on his, uh, on, at their expense. I mean, that's, the, that's what he could do. That, that stuff wouldn't probably fly now, obviously. But um, back then it did, and uh, he was a master at it. And, and, and there's, so there's just a ton of those that uh, we've heard about, urban legends. It's worth noting that behind the scenes, Harold Ballard was actually quite charitable. When he yep. died on April 11, 1990, at the age of 86, he left the majority of his estate to charity. So an outrageous character in life, Ballard suddenly became one of Toronto's biggest philanthropists. Uh, that's an interesting side to him that most wouldn't have expected. No, they didn't expect it because he was uh, uh, very good at keeping that quiet. He wanted a tough guy image. He wanted to be feared in a way. And charity didn't fit into that. And he quietly gave money, quietly supported many 
uh, causes and the odd one he would get recognized for, you know, but generally speaking, and we have some great dialogue and quotes in the documentary about this from, from several people, but he uh, wouldn't want his tough guy image tarnished. And that, that's why charity became uh, quiet. And to this day, his charitable foundation still exists, still supports the uh, underprivileged and the downtrodden and the sick. And uh, they quietly, again, do their job giving money away. And, uh, you know, it, it, what a paradox, right? Yeah. There's a guy who loved the limelight, loved being out front, um, wanted to be the face of the Maple Leafs, yet not to the point where, you know, when he was, was doing good, he wouldn't allow that to happen. It was only when he was kind of uh, being a scoundrel that he enjoyed the limelight. Well, it just shows he had a good side, too. Yep. Michael, did you uncover or record any material that eventually you couldn't use or didn't use, and, and, and why? This was a period piece. Clearly, Harold passed away 30 years ago, so there was nothing that we uncovered that probably wasn't out there already. I mean, we did, we, we did lengthy interviews. Um, and, you know, in a 90-minute documentary, quite frankly, we could have produced um, a two-parter out of this, but it was a 90-minute documentary. And we couldn't, we couldn't go too far off the links in the chain because, remember, we went way back to the beginnings of how Harold got into the game of hockey. And for a guy born in 1903, we had to skip over many decades. But, you know, we, we, we think we, you know, put all the right links in the chain to get us to the, you know, basically the end of, the end of Harold, which was when he passed away in 1990. So there was, there was no, you know, anything that would have been uh, a profound find in all of our exploration would have made it in the documentary. And a few things did, you know. Uh, a lot of people have uh, said that they really enjoyed the first part of the documentary, which opened their eyes to just the, the battle in the boardroom and how he actually found the, the Leafs landing on his lap in 1971. And, uh, I mean, he had a lot going on in his life. He had lost his wife at that time. He was being charged for, you know, larceny and fraud and uh, awaiting a sentencing uh, the Leafs fall on his lap. He goes into extreme debt. And, you know, I, I think Harold owed the banks a lot of money, quite frankly. He was not, he was in over his head for sure uh, with the banks, but the banks owned the team. Now, nobody knew that. It was Harold Ballard on the team and he had a little something to prove. Uh, he wanted to become part of that elite in Toronto and eventually he probably was. But um, that was one of his motivations for sure that he was, he was the new money, even though he was 68 years old. The watch was ticking, and he had a lot to prove. Well, Origin Story was very informative, the whole story of the Silver Seven. We'll let yeah. our listeners watch for themselves, because I agree it was great. I didn't know any of that stuff. It was great. Michael, on a more serious note, the doc does not acknowledge the significant sexual abuse scandal that occurred at Maple Leaf Gardens. Gordon Stuckless was an equipment manager, but also a pedophile, who was found guilty for sexually assaulting more than 40 boys over decades at Maple Leaf Gardens. Why did you not include this situation? Was it part of the Harold Ballard story or not in your view? No, I don't think it was. We ended this documentary with Harold passing and it was Harold and his hockey team the whole way. That was the narrative. There's a whole other documentary if somebody wants to do it on this and, and they have. So it's been well publicized. Two men were charged and put away. I don't think there's any more to be said. I mean, people tried to tie Harold to it because it happened in his building in the far corners in the boiler room and so on but all this surfaced after his death and even his worst critics and this is my personal opinion 
even his worst critics said that they don't see this. They don't mm-hmm. see any reason to tie Harold to this. And uh, like, all you have to do is read a McLean's article with William Houston, who was his worst critic. And he basically states what I just said. You, you did cover Harold's ownership of the Hamilton Tiger Cats football team in the CFL, but I wondered if you uncovered anything about Harold's role in anyone else getting or not getting a second NHL team in the uh, GTA. No, no, we, di- we didn't uh, talk about uh, a second franchise. I mean, and that still may be the case to this day. Somebody is, is working that because it is a huge hockey market. But the interesting thing about the Tiger Cats, again, an hour down the road, uh, he did want to be a... Uh, a sport titan uh, and own more than just one sports franchise, although he had a huge one in the Toronto Maple Leafs. So he had been trying for some time to launch a Toronto-based football team in the CFL, whether it be by a new franchise or buying the Argos, which he was unable to do either of those things. The Tiger Cats, which were struggling, hit the almost the auction block and he was able to buy the whole team for a million dollars. Several years later, they you know, I think it was 86, they won a great cup and he won a championship. Interestingly, he sold, the team was sold for a dollar. So the CFL is a much different league as well and it's, it's a much different business, quite frankly. But, you know, there's a team that, you know, didn't, he didn't have bums in seats. He didn't, he didn't have that luxury of, you know, demand so, so greater than s- supply uh, when it came to a CFL franchise. But I also think he... He had a, a sibling rivalry, and I think it was a, a, a real backhanded way for maybe him to instill some more fear into the team and that he, he was putting some of his love to another team. I mean, he rubbed their face on it. He used to put the Tiger Cats logo on the ice at center ice at, at uh, Maple Leaf Gardens. And if you're a hockey player, I mean, what are you, what are you left to think when that happens, right? I mean, yeah, uh, it's crazy. He did seem to get quite a bit of pleasure from uh, running the Tiger Cats. Yeah. Let's talk about Brandon Walsh from 90210. Jason Priestley is a Vancouver guy. And frankly, Mm -hmm. Michael, you involving him as director and narrator somewhat offended me. Uh, But in all seriousness, how did you get Jason involved? And why was he so interested in a doc about Ontario's very own Harold Ballard? Well, he's a a great director and he's got a great uh, style that's very disarming when um, you're sitting down to interview people uh, and he brought out you know when we lined up all these great uh, former players you know all the captains Vive and Sittler and Wendell Clark and a number of other players and some great media types you know they were very uh, comfortable talking to Jason which is fabulous and and you know yes he's a hockey fan and yes he grew up in Vancouver for for Jason he he actually you know he knew about Ballard it was his vintage he was a kid uh, growing up, but Ballard was that 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 kind of bright northern star. Everybody in the country knew who he was because of his antics. So for him, his education and his learning curve on this topic was was quite a bit steeper than mine. For instance, growing up, I grew up in the area. Yeah, for him, uh, he came at it with a level of innocence as well, and you know, just trying to find out what made Harold tick. Why did he do this? Why were his motivations seemingly out of sync with winning? We leave the viewer with trying to answer all those things, and, and some answers are tabled, but it really is up to the... He did a great job at leaving it to the viewer to t- have their own take on Harold and not shine a light on any one thing to say, here's what you're, you are supposed to think. 
And I think that's the sign of a a good documentary. And uh, you know, the players clearly opened up for us and and just spoke to us about their personal experience and personal feelings. And uh, that's all you can ask for. So it was a pleasure working with Jason. He's a great guy and uh, did a great job. Now, Jason Priestley is also apparently involved with the Borea Salming Biopic Project, which involves mm-hmm. stakeholders both in Sweden and Canada. This mm-hmm. was already in production with Borea Salming's involvement before he passed away this past November. Michael, what do your sources tell you about the progress of that Borea Salming project? Yeah, I mean, uh, Jason played um, a key role in that uh, co-production with Sweden. Uh, and it's an English language project, but it's, uh, it's in Sweden and Canada. Um, he played Jerry McNamara. Jerry McNamara is in our documentary, and Jerry was the guy who discovered, as a scout for the Leafs at the time, discovered Borea Salming. From what I understand, it's in post-production. It'll be launched. I think it's a four-parter. There was no kind of uh, design to do a number of hockey projects. You know, in, in this business, there's some sometimes a cosmic element that brings projects out of, from out of nowhere, and I think this was one of those for Jason. You know, we, we've been working on this documentary for a while, and then lo and behold, a part comes up that's of great interest that he's actually now well-informed in because of our own research on this documentary. So, you know, you'd have to ask Jason, but I think he, he was thrilled to play that part, and it's a very interesting, timely, obviously. And, of course, you know, we all know what happened with Borea, and I know he passed away during that production of uh, that series, so it was a very weird, surreal time for them, I'm sure, and it was, as it was for all of us, right? Sure. Well, uh, Jason Priestley is certainly carving out a, he's going to become a Toronto Maple Leafs guy before this is all done. I think so. One of the things you brought up was the access you had to so many great viewpoints. And I was uh, really enjoyed hearing from all these Leaf greats, Daryl Sittler, Lanny McDonald, Tiger Williams, Jim McKenney. How did you get them involved? Were they eager to talk or did you find people were a little more reticent to, to share their views? Um, well, we had, an, we had uh, brought on board to our production team Something we made in an associate producer, Gord Stellick. Gord being one of the former GMs of the Leafs, very much an active voice in, in hockey in this country and with his radio show. He, he, was, he was kind of our, our beacon. He, he had the relationships and he, he got on the phone and talked to everybody and said, you know what, we're doing this documentary. It's, it's about time we do. Somebody had done a deep dive on Harold Ballard. And so once we got the captains and others kind of suited up, you might say, and they, they joined the, the team and... You know, there was many more we wanted to talk to, um, but you know, this list is is a heady list, and we're very proud of the uh, the voices that came forward, and they all had a different interaction and experience with Ballard. I mean, Tiger Williams uh, loved Harold, um, referred to him in the documentary as almost like a grandfather to him. That was at the beginning of of Harold's uh, reign in the Leafs. I think Tiger came aboard in seventy three, seventy four, and I think. Their experience would have been a lot different than others, you know, meaning Tiger and Ballard's experience. Fast forward to the last chapter of Ballard's life when they drafted uh, Wendell Clark. Ballard took him under his wing, and, and it was clear Wendell has nothing but positive things to say about Harold. And uh, Harold gave him a starting position at 18 years old, and the team, you know, he quickly became captain, quite frankly. So the team was relying on this number one draft pick in Wendell Clark. And then there were a whole bunch of players in between. Here you've got Rick Vive, who in the documentary we, we, we duly note, he's the only Leaf to score 50 goals, and then he did it three seasons in a row. And for some reason, you know, Ballard gave him a T-set for that. So, you know, you can't make that up. 
Yeah. Um, would that happen today? Um, I mean, the Leafs have a 60-goal score. I, th- I think things are a little different today. Uh, it's safe to say a T-set wouldn't be uh, in the discussion. So they all had their own experience, and they all talked openly and reflected, you know, with time on our side. You know, people reflect differently when 30 years have passed than they would say in the moment. So 30 years have passed and now they can reflect and they're all wiser. They, uh, they're older and uh, they can maybe have a different lens back to that era. So I thought it was, it was great. great. As you know, you got to many heavy hitters. You had the big names from Leafs history, which was great. But there were two former Leafs that were notably not present. And I wondered if you had spoken with them or tried or, or whether there was any interest. One yeah. was goaltending legend Mike the popcorn kid, Palmateer. Yeah. And the second that I was thinking of was the very freshly fired uh, Bruce Boudreaux. Yeah. He has had many vocal opinions on hockey then, hockey now. Did either of those two guys uh, on your yeah. wish list? They, uh, Bruce, Bruce wasn't. Um, you know, as an active coach, uh, it just wasn't something we, we thought was uh, appropriate. And yes, he did play in that era. And I mean, there were, there were lots of players back then, obviously, we could talk to. Palmateer, I believe we tried to reach him and it just wasn't successful. I mean, Dave Keon, I would have loved to speak to as well, but Dave Keon really doesn't speak to many people. Yeah. And, you know, there were, there were a few, and, uh, but we were generally speaking very pleased. And when we landed and kind of locked our list, there wasn't anybody missing in that. You know, we, we, had, we had the mosaic of opinions needed and experiences needed to get this documentary uh, put together. That's a great word. I agree. It was a nice mosaic. <laughs> I wondered in the same way that you brought on some, let's call them millennial uh, journalists, people who mm-hmm. weren't even born mm-hmm. the, uh, when Harold was around, I wondered if you considered bringing in any current Leaf players or management to comment. No, definitely not Not any current. Just, I, I just don't think that would have been appropriate, and we've moved so far from those Ballard years. You're hard-pressed to find a lot of people that could speak today about Harold Ballard. Uh, when you know frankly they, they were born after his death so they, they they've heard the rumors they know a little bit about Ballard and the reason we got some young voices in this they were actually sportscasters they were informed you know they, they had some good points of view on just uh, you know how today Harold Ballard couldn't exist right so I think you had to talk to somebody today as opposed to somebody from yesteryear about that topic so you know Donovan Bennett in phase of Camisa, both uh, Sportsnet broadcasters were happy to speak to us and gave us some great uh, points of view from a you know millennial of today. We love on this podcast to go behind the scenes, how, see how the sausage gets made. I want to ask you, in creating a documentary like this, what kind of permissions are necessary from the Leafs, from the NHL, from the Ballard family? Is it different than doing a news piece or a you know a fictional yep. piece? This being a yep. documentary. How do you get the, through that process? Clear, clearances are uh, paramount. As a uh, television movie, as this was, we had to get numerous permissions, surprisingly not from the Ballard family. We wanted them um, involved. They just politely passed. But legally, Harold has passed, and he's in the public domain, and you can, you can do these doc, kind of documentaries without family permission. When it gets into the uh, footage, we need numerous permissions from the NHL, from the, uh, all the archival uh, sources, uh, whereas news doesn't, to your point. So we had a full-time uh, archivist and producer that was charged with uh, helping uncover 
and we found some great stuff. It was interesting, though, for a guy as upfront and out there as Harold, those one-on-one interviews were few and far between. We had news scrum footage on Harold, uh, Harold being interviewed on you know things like Hockey Night in Canada that you'll see in this documentary. But you know, one-on-ones with Harold where somebody actually sat him down and get him really, really did an expose. We really uh, uh, used a, a, some great nuggets from a Fifth Estate interview where they did that with Adrian Clarkson, and it's you know I think it was a 1980 interview, and uh, we got some great things that uh, informed us about who Harold was. So it's a long process to do a documentary. It's it's not a sausage factory. Uh, a lot of times, um, a documentary, you take one step forward, two steps back. We had a great editor in Ken Yan, hockey fan, loves the Leafs. This is a passion project for him, and it clearly went into his work. But it's, it's, it's tough doing a documentary. Um, you think you can go down this story element only to find out that you can't support it. There's no footage. Um, you go this way, sometimes you get a lot of footage about something, but nobody to talk about it, nobody to back it up. And the discipline of just making sure that you have a good story with arcs and those links in the chain and there's a few threads, you know, that take you there. And because we just didn't want this to be an informational piece with um, uh, just a bunch of facts strung together, which is kind of news, really. This, this, th- this left you wanting more, I think. Uh, that's what I've been hearing. Uh, again, I wish we had done a second part to this, but as far as behind the scenes, we, we have plans to do a four-by-one-hour miniseries on mm. Harold Ballard. We've done a lot of work on it, and we think that now the documentary may be the, uh, uh, the spark that is going to get this made and, 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 and be a great sales tool to get the scripted, highly stylized version of Ballard's story in, say, a four-parter done. So we're very excited about that. That sounds great. Is there a timetable for that or still in the planning? No, it's still in the planning. I mean, that, that, that's a much longer road and a much different sensibility and different kind of production. But we'd have to cast it. Um, you know, we have to get a network home. Perhaps it's a streamer. So we're, we're, we're working on all of that. But again, this, the news, the support, the buzz under this documentary is only, only going to help us get it over the top. And you've had such an extensive career yourself in productions. And when you look at the changing landscape, it yep. used to be, this is going to be shown at this time on this day on CBC. Maybe you'll get to see a repeat somewhere down the road. But this was very different. It was heavily promoted as 8 p.m. last Sunday. And yeah. watch it anytime on CBC Gem Streaming. This yep. must be very different for you and how you approach the audience. Yeah, I mean, we really wanted to, uh, because it was uh, a documentary that will skew on the CBC, probably a little older than a lot of stuff on television, appointment television. I think a lot of people were just going to sit down at 8 o'clock and the way they used to watch TV and watch this. But for those who missed it, it's on CBC Gem streaming. It's uh, going to make its way around the world. And interestingly, you know, in Canada, no matter what we, what we and how we position this story, and how it's advertised, whatever it may be. This is a, a hockey story. I mean, we're, we're in Canada, right? But in the States, uh, it'll resonate with hockey people and certainly expats living there that are part of Leafs Nation. But in the States and internationally, it's a story of a, it's a r- classic rise and fall. And it is a story about a business scoundrel that ran unchecked. We know already that documentaries in this space and even dramatized things in this space are highly, highly viewed.
viewed and of interest. So this story, you know, if it if it wasn't true, you wouldn't believe a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> and frankly, there's a lot of gobsmacking moments in this documentary that if you scripted this uh, as a as a drama and it was fictional, you wouldn't believe it. It wouldn't be believable. Yeah. Yet we've got this story, and the story of Harold is one of the biggest characters to come out of this country ever. Is highly, you know. It's very exciting and highly watchable. Let's close, let's close with a few loose ends. Michael, as you noted, there's been a long journey putting this documentary together. You've been living this for such a long time. Be honest. Are the members of your family tired of hearing Harold Ballard anecdotes? <laughs> it's funny that I, I don't talk about uh, my business with my family. They'll say what's going on, and I'm very superstitious in this business because you always have you know, 20 irons in the fire. And in this business, if you're able to pull two out of the fire and say, okay, this one's going to get made, you're successful. So I don't talk about my shows a lot until they're a go. Now, this one was a go. So I wanted to, you know, uh, let them see it for the first time when it was finished. And they did. So they, they were along for the ride. And um, I can shut it down. I mean, yeah, they're, they're not sick of Ballard yet. Um, but with all the publicity, it was fun to see the publicity hit, and they, I knew I had uh, lightning in a bottle with this documentary. So when they saw the publicity starting to hit, they were like, wow. And I, and I, I was very surprised how much uh, support we had uh, for this and anticipation for this documentary. So uh, we, we, you know, I think we did our job. It's a fun one, and people are uh, talking about it, and they want more. So I'm thrilled. Well, as you should be. I want to ask if you uncovered enough material for a Steve Stavros documentary. He was another former Maple Leafs owner with a very interesting life story. He came from nothing to build the Nob Hill Farms yep. grocery empire, somehow yep. wrangled control of the Leafs. Is there another story there? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the, as far as hockey and the uh, history of the Leafs, that would be the next logical place to go in his story with Nob Hill Farms. And I met Steve Stavros, unlike Ballard. I met Stavros a couple of times. And I know the Stavros family quite well. Um, yeah, interesting. I, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't match it wouldn't match the Harold docu- documentary. There's just not enough in there. Um, he didn't own the team for long enough, and he was a very very uh, low key, quiet man. Incredibly successful, and ran in some high high circles. And you know, a Canadian entrepreneur and a business titan um, that happened to own the Toronto Maple Leafs. So. Just a different, uh, a different, a, a different guy. So yeah, you know, I, I'm a huge admirer of Steve Stavros, and they said I know the family, but I'm not sure there's a documentary there. You've talked about what's next in the hopper with the Harold Ballard story. What's next that you're working on, Doc, or otherwise? Yeah, I produce. Uh, you know, I've been at it for a long time. I produce a lot of uh, unscripted projects. Um, I've got another documentary uh, about the uh, an era. And this will probably be a two or three parter. That's very exciting. You know, it's it's called the Magic Boys of Baseball, and it's about um, an era in the early uh, 1900s. Every major league baseball team had a mascot, and it's where we now have the predecessor to Bat Boys. And it was it was steeped in superstition and magic. These Bat Boys were their lucky charms. Truly, their lucky charms. They travel with the team. Each player sometimes had their own lucky charm. The interesting thing is 
They could only be a lucky charm if they were a disfigured hunchback and uh, dwarf. So all the teams had somebody in the dugout that was four feet tall and a disfigured kid that had had really the, the roughest upbringing you could imagine. Yet they were one of the most famous and revered people in the dugout because they were deemed the lucky charm for the team. So I want to do a documentary about that. And uh, I've done a lot of research. That's the next one that excites me. I have to say, Mike, that falls into the same category as uh, I'm not going to believe it, except it was true. So we're going to have to see it. Yes. Yeah. In closing, I say to our listeners, if you love your Maple Leafs and are a true sadist and or masochist for the finer details of the 70s and 80s Leafs, I do recommend you go to CBC Gem anytime to stream Offside, the Harold Ballard story. Michael, where can we best follow you and all your future projects? Are you on social media? Yeah, I'm at GetUsMike99. That's my Twitter handle. And I'm not a, I will warn everybody, I, I, I don't post a lot. Uh, Instagram uh, as well. And then more so on Facebook. And I uh, have a website as well, my company, LoneEagle.ca. Uh, I don't promote myself. Maybe I should, Andrew. I don't know. But I don't promote myself <laughs> well, like others. But the odd time I will. And, and Ballard was a good example. I just wanted people to see it, right? So, And so they should. I had a great time with it. And again, congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate and I all that. I wish you continued success. Thank you. And to you, Andrew. And uh, this was fun. Great. Well, it was my pleasure. And to the listeners, we say thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Michael Geddes, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.